The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com. This is Barron's Live. Each weekday, we bring you live conversations from our newsrooms about what's moving the market right now. On this podcast, we take you inside those conversations, the stories, the ideas, and the stocks to watch so you can invest smarter. Now, let's dial in. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Barron's Live, our daily webcast and podcast. I'm Lauren Rublin, Senior Managing Editor of Barron's. Thanks for joining us today to learn more about investing in healthcare and the latest in COVID treatments and vaccines. My guest is Barron's healthcare reporter, Josh Nathan Cases. Josh, it's great to have you back on Barron's Live. Thanks. Uh, great to be here. Good to talk to you. All right, we've got a lot to cover today. So let's start with the big picture story on COVID. Suddenly, it's not really looking so good. I have to tell you personally, I'm very glad I didn't go to the White House Correspondents' Dinner. It <laughs> seems to have led to quite a few infections. I'm glad you didn't go either. <laughs> but you don't have to go too far today to find a COVID resurgence. It does not seem to want to go away. Tell us what's happening out there. I mean, it, it's it, things have gotten confusing, at least at least for me. I mean, you know, cases are, are up nationwide right now about 50% over the last two weeks. Um, you know, you, you can sort of see or a number of weeks ago, we talked about how cases were spiking in the Northeast. It seems like cases are still climbing in the Northeast. But, um, you know, you, you see a lot of uh, steep, steep climbs in the Midwest. Um, you know, it's again, hard to know exactly what to make of case increases these days, given that so many people are, you know, testing at home um, and not reporting those tests. Uh, and so the, the, those figures notionally or likely would not be reflected. Those tests and those positives would not be reflected in these case increases. You know, m- more important, I think, are hospitalizations, which are up um, 18% nationwide over the last two weeks. The daily average now is around 17,000. Um, and that, you know, to give you a sense of scale, is roughly a tenth of the late January average of, um, you know, 160,000. Um you know, the Delta variant peak was around 100,000. So, you know, we're, we're, we're pretty low. The hospitalizations bottomed out in mid-April at around 15,000 uh, per day. So, um, you know, relative to where we've been, hospitalizations are in a pretty good place. Um, and, and deaths also are a relatively, in a relative, well, I don't know if we, we should frame it like that, but deaths are at about 350 people dying per day, which is a high number, but again, relative to where we've been, that's quite a low number. So didn't we pass the million mark recently in America? Yes. Yeah. That's, yeah. that's another, another grim, grim milestone. Yeah. Extre- extremely. So uh, tell me about the variant landscape. It yeah, is it, so confusing with all these BA numbers. I mean, this is where things have gotten very confusing in the sort of the way that we've been trained to think about it last year in terms of these, you know, Greek lettered variants is now out the window because we've, they've decided um, to, go back to these sort of letter number names to identify the various subvariants of Omicron, which now are dominating the world in terms of um, the sort of genetic makeup of the, of the virus. Um, you know, as I think people probably know by now, the original Omicron variant in the U.S. is basically extinct. But, you know, what people may not have caught on to at this point is that BA2 is no longer overwhelmingly dominant um, BA2 is at about 62%. The rest of it in the U.S. Uh, per CDC estimates is 
a variant called BA2.12.1, and that's the central New York variant. That's about 30-something percent. Um, and it is supposed to be, you know, even more transmissible than uh, BA2. Um, it's also worth mentioning that there are new uh, subvariants of Omicron that are causing a surge in South Africa. Um, these go by the numbers BA4 and BA5. And there have been some reports in the last few days that they can evade protections in the unvaccinated induced by prior infection with BA1, which isn't great. And, um, you know, as people will remember, um, th th there's a long history of waves beginning in South Africa and, and then moving, you know, to parts of Europe and then into the U.S. Well, I have to say, no wonder you're confused, but none of these seem to be causing severe disease like the original COVID and Delta. Is that true? Well, they can certainly cause severe disease, but but right at, at, for for whatever reason, whether it's something intrinsic about these um, viruses or the layers of protection, both both from vaccination and natural immunity that exist in global populations, um, as we can see, you know, rates of severe disease are not what they were by any means. All right. Well, the whole report is kind of worrisome, Josh, if you ask me. And also worrisome were some recent comments from Moderna's CEO about the company's ability to ready a new vaccine for a new strain that could appear in the fall. You spoke to Stefan Bansell, the CEO of the company. What did he tell you? Right. So just let's, just to be let's take, take a step back, you know, um, Moderna has been working on a number of new versions of its COVID vaccine. You know, right now, the COVID vaccine that you can get is the original COVID vaccine. There have been no changes to the strain makeup um, since the beginning. So, you know, the whole way, so, so, so these are all um, designed to target the original, uh, you know, the so-called uh, Wuhan strain, the, the, the very first strain, which does not exist anymore anywhere in the world. Uh, Moderna and other companies have been working on updated versions of their, of these messenger, um, messenger RNA based vaccines. Uh, there is um, the one that, that Moderna wants to roll out in the fall is a bivalent vaccine that would mix the original Omicron and um, uh, a, a, a version of the vaccine. I'm sorry, let, let me start again. The original vaccine uh, with a new version that um, is targeting the original Omicron. Um they don't have any data on that yet. It's in trials. They do have data on another version of the vaccine they were working on that specifically tar targeted the beta variant. They're not going to roll that out. But what was um, sort of important about the data there and what, what their study showed is that even though it targeted the beta variant, it actually appeared to be induce more antibodies against the Omicron variant than the original vaccine, which suggests that, you know, updating it a bit, even if you're not updating it to the most uh, you know, the, the, the active variant, the variant that, that is actually most most prevalent at the time when you're administering it can um, be helpful. So that, that's what Moderna is doing. Now, what the FDA is doing is that um, they are going to have a meeting on June 28th at which they are going to say what they think the makeup of the fall booster should be. And they're basically planning on having a fall booster, it seems like. And, uh, you know, they had a meeting last month where they talked about preparing for this. And, you know, they, they, they were talking about sort of how how it works when the the flu vaccine, you know, gets designed for, for the year. You'll have a meeting at some point. You'll decide which particular flu strains you're going to target that year. 
but you got to give enough lead time for the companies that make the flu vaccines to manufacture the appropriate flu vaccine. Now, the FDA meet, meeting at which they're going to discuss what strain the fall COVID booster is going to target, you know, whether it be Omicron or BA2 or BA3 or whatever, um, is on June 28th. And they, you know, they, they, they talked at earlier meetings and people we'd spoken to um, who sit on these committees had said that you need to balance um, on the one hand, giving the companies enough time. And on the other hand, uh, you know, not, not making a selection too early. Cause as we've seen, this virus can change very, very quickly. Right. Um, anyway, what, what Ben Sell said to me yesterday is that if on June 28th, they say they want a strain that is not the original Omicron, they won't be able to get it ready in time. He said, you know, you can't give me, you can't tell me on June 28th that you want to be a two specific fall vaccine. Um, I just, it's just not physically possible. The plasmids that we've already started ordering uh, will not, we, we just couldn't get enough in time to, to make it. It would take weeks or months to get the plasmids together. Uh, those are sort of the, these sort of, it's one of the key ingredient of the vaccine yeah. um, in order to, to, to do it. So I, I did ask the FDA about this and they said they had spoken with um, experts and that they thought that uh, the, the timing was okay. Um, you know, it, it's possible that the experts will say uh, on the FDA's advisory committee will say, you know, um, original Omicron plus, uh, you know, Wuhan strain, that sort of bivalent vaccine that Pfizer, that Moderna is already working on. That's what makes sense. And, and then everybody will move forward with that. And that seems like Moderna does not believe they'll have any trouble getting that ready on time. They could also say, let's stick with the original vaccine. And Moderna said they could do that too. But um, it sounds like Moderna is saying, if you say, you know, we want a BA2 specific vaccine in very vast quantities for the fall, um, you know, they, they won't be able to do that. There are so many variables here. It's really hard to know how this is going to play out. Well, it's a very hard question for the FDA, but it, it, it also... I, I mean, it sort of leaves me a little bit puzzled. Why Why is, uh, you know, Ben Sell saying this um, now? And why did the FDA not make the meeting sooner? And uh, what's that advisory committee meeting going to be like where notionally they're making a selection, but actually they're being, they've been told already that they don't really have a choice. Um, it's, it's too late to make a choice. It may be too soon to know what variant to make the vaccine for and too late to make that vaccine. Well, that's sort of the basic problem here. I mean, it yeah. raises this concern that maybe mRNA vaccines just actually aren't fast enough to keep up with the, with the virus. And that it goes to this basic question, I think, like what, what actually is the point of boosters? Do we need boosters? Uh, are we trying to prevent all infections? Is that even possible? Or are we just trying to prevent severe disease? And in this case, maybe we don't need boosters. Maybe we don't need super targeted boosters. Maybe we don't need mRNA based boosters. So th these are the big questions for the next you know, months and years. You'll have a lot to cover, Josh. <laughs> that's that's my takeaway. It's a fascinating time. So let's move on to pharma and biotech earnings. We're still in the heart of first quarter earnings season. A lot of companies you follow have reported already, keeping you pretty busy there. We'll start with Pfizer, which is kind of the bellwether of the group. What's the good news, or in this case, the disappointing news? Well, the uh, Pfizer earnings weren't bad. Uh, they, they beat earnings estimates. Um, uh, you know, one notable point is that um, sales of the antiviral, of the COVID antiviral Paxlovid did come, come in short of expectations. Um, revenue is 
seven billion above the um, the analyst expectation of twenty four billion in total. But Paxlovid sales were one one and a half billion short of the two billion guidance. Um, although it's actually worth noting that the I guess maybe a day or two before earnings, uh, Pfizer had announced disappointing, rare, disappointing data in a Paxlovid trial. You know, Paxlovid is this drug that is this COVID antiviral that's turned in shockingly good data throughout its development program. They'd run a, a test of this drug as a as a prophylactic to prevent um, infection in, in people who were in households, uh, standard risk people, I believe, who were in households with people who had gotten sick. And the results were not statistically significant, uh, according to Pfizer. Um, so that that's uh, that's pretty disappointing. Shares were up two percent earnings day, um, although they are. Um, so yeah, that's that's uh, so it was well generally well well received despite those those wrinkles. Okay, and the, we should just note the stock is down about sixteen percent year to date, and it yields about three point three percent. Although it's wanna... down three point three percent today. <laughs> oh no! <laughs> <laughs> Although that's kind of not, not as bad as the rest of the market. Right, right. Well, the market's giving back what what it gave us yesterday. Exactly. So, having had more time to digest Mr. Powell's comments. So let's move on to Moderna. Before we do, I want to remind people that we will take questions at the end of the call. So type in your questions. Let us know what's on your minds. Moderna reported also recently. Tell us what the company said, what's happening there. Yeah, so this was Wednesday, uh, yesterday. Um, Moderna beat estimates um, by a lot. Sales were $6.1 billion versus the estimate, the fact that estimate of $4.2 billion. I think it's worth asking how significant that is just because they they did not change the 22 billion dollars that they said they have in signed advanced purchase agreements for the year um uh for their covid vaccine um so you know it could be that the the sort of pie is just being sliced differently in terms of the four quarters of the year uh you know i I did speak to the to ben sell the ceo about this he kind of said it's both on the one hand um, sales were, were heavy in the first quarter, but he expects more sales in the second half of the year. Um, and, and he notes that um, the U.S. has not made any purchases yet this year. So if the U.S. does choose to do a fall booster campaign and they, you know, they would notionally need to buy more doses. Um, the alternative is that it goes onto the private market, which Moderna said they are preparing for. And that, that's a possibility if Congress does not allocate the funds. So who would buy in that case? It would work the same way that any vaccine um, okay. is, is purchased. Um, so, you know, uh, you know, you, uh, whoever those buyers are, hospital systems, um, you know, various payers, um, uh, the, the normal commercial channels. Um, so Moderna's down really sharply this year, about 40% or so. What, yeah. is that, what is that a reflection of? And well, what, a are, things. what are analysts saying about, you know, the future prospects but let's take us back tell us what happened and then we'll look ahead i mean there's a couple of things going on here one is that all of all of biotech is down although large cap biotech like moderna is down less than small and mid cap biotech i think the other thing is that investors are taking a, a look at the covid vaccine outlook and and still wrestling with how long term this market's going to be and what it's going to look like in, in a year or two and and, and whether um, how, how to think, you know, all, all of the things I was talking about a moment ago with regards to the fall booster campaign, I mean, I think these are all calculations, um, that, that investors are dealing with in terms of, you know, how widespread 
and long-term um, boosting is really going to be. And I think we don't, we don't really know, you know, Moderna makes the case that they have lots of drugs in, in late stage development um, and, and lots of programs going on. And they certainly have plenty of cash to, to, you know, do all sorts of things to, to, to move more products, to their pipeline to do business development. Um, but I, I think the, the big question remains, what will the future of the booster landscape be? We'll keep coming back to that, I'm sure. So let's move on, though, to AbbVie, which also reported last week. Tell us about AbbVie's numbers. Yes, yeah, their earnings were roughly in line. They cut their guidance, but that guidance cut seems to be related to certain accounting changes that happened. Uh, it's not really worth going into what they were, but a number of these firms made these changes and had to adjust guidance uh, for that reason. You know, the big thing for AbbVie is that their main drug, the sort of tenpole drug, the drug that, you know, they spun out of Abbott, nearly a decade ago in order to sell um humira is uh th their exclusivity is expiring in the u.s next year and they're going to have um uh biosimilar competition from a number of companies um and so so that's going to take a big chunk over time out of humira sales sales were shares fell six percent um, on the day they put out their earnings although the, the stock is up 12 percent this year or at least was uh, as of yesterday i don't know what's going on right now right Right. We should note that AbV yields almost 4%, which is pretty high for the pharma sector and yeah. a pretty attractive yield. So let's move on. It's like a hit parade of big pharma, Bristol-Myers. What's the story there? Yeah, the, the, similar to AbV, slight beat, also had to cut guidance, but uh, for that same accounting change reason. The bigger news there is that they, the day before their earnings, I think it was, they announced approval of a drug called Mavicamptin which treats an inherited heart condition called obstructive hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. Um, and what's notable there is that uh, Bristol bought that drug or got that drug as part of a $13 billion purchase uh, two years ago of a company called Myocardia. Um, and, and so, you know, that that's finally um, hitting the market. Um, the company fell two and a half percent on earnings, but it's up more than 20% this year. Okay, so there are two more companies I want to talk about, Teva Pharmaceuticals and Merck. Teva had some news on the opioid settlement. Fill us in there. So Teva is one of these many companies in the sector that um, is dealing with a lot of lit litigation related to their alleged role in the opioid crisis. Some companies like Cardinal Health, for example, and other drug distributors have made national or nationwide settlements that have um, handled or, or dealt with the vast majority of the litigation facing them. Teva has, although it reached a tentative settlement years ago, has not reached a nationwide settlement yet. And, uh, you know, I've spoken to the CEO many times and every time he, you know, you know, says he has high hopes that a settlement will happen soon. He said it again when, when we spoke yesterday, he said he, he expects a na nationwide settlement by the end of the year. But, it, it you know, it, that it does seem more likely now than before that it, that it really is about to happen. Um, there have been a number of one-off settlements with various states in the past month. I believe Rhode Island was one of them. And what we're seeing is that the mix of um, payments that Teva is doing initially as part of the, the proposed framework, it was largely they were, they were going to be donating, you know, giving uh, billions of dollars worth of drugs used to treat um, addiction, addiction drugs that they, that they manufacture and, and a little bit of cash. They're now going to be offering in, in, in these more recent statewide settlements are offering a much higher proportion of cash and then a little bit of, of this 
this this this drug um and it looks like that's what the settlements end up being you know the problem here is they have something like two, 20 billion dollars in debt so all of these cash payments are happening over uh, many years um but uh it does feel like we're reaching the end of this mm, very complicated story of the opioid litigation yeah long dark history as it were how about Merck? Company uh, is um, a company reported in late April. Yeah, um, you know they they had a they had a, their revenues were up fifty percent from the same quarter of the previous year, which um, you know that was greeted very warmly by the market. Um, the stock went up five percent that day. Um, was that all know, from organic growth, or was there an acquisition in there? You know, a lot of that. So there's two things. One, of, first of all, um, sales were the first quarter last year due to pandemic impacts. It was just a very weak quarter, so it was a it was a good comp, as they say. The other thing is that they they had three billion dollars in sales of their COVID antiviral. Um, so if you take out the COVID antiviral, it wasn't it wasn't much. Um, it, the, the increase was there, but it wasn't quite okay. as big. Um, you know, I, I spoke with Merck's CFO that day, and, and she said something interesting. You know, we talk a lot about how how biotech stocks are down, you know, thirty percent over the, over the uh, so far this year. But she was saying that in their conversations with biotech executives, it really hasn't changed the executives thinking on the value of their companies. She said, I, I think the world lives in hope. And if you're sitting in a biotech, you're waiting to understand, is this permanent or is it temp- temporary? Um, you know, and I, I thought that, that that may go some way to explaining why we haven't seen more biotech M&A because, you know, biotech company valuations are down and um, big pharma firms are sitting on a lot of cash, but there haven't been that many deals. And it seems as though what well, one thing might, that might be happening here is that these biotech executives are are banking on the the valuation cuts they've seen being a temporary condition. I think a lot of us are hoping that the cuts across the market will be temporary, but that's a good question. If you think you can get a lot more for your stock in a more normalized environment, you may be less eager to sell now. So speaking of biotech, tell us how bad things are out there. I know yeah. that stocks were down a lot at the beginning of the year. Yeah, so so we you know I, we we looked earlier this week at how biotech stocks had done in April. The XBI, uh, the, S, the SPDR S and P Biotech ETF was down 18 percent in April. It's down thirty four percent so far, or as of the end of April, it was down thirty four percent so far in twenty twenty two, and forty six percent over the past 12, 12 months which is which is quite dramatic you know we should say that the 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 ibb another uh biotech etf that tracks larger biotech stocks largely or it's weighted more heavily towards the larger end of the sector it's down 24 percent over the last 12 months so so not as bad but but certainly you know small cap biotechs are are it's not getting better yet right Seems that way. You were bullish on the sector in a story in March. So far, it hasn't worked out quite as you expected. But as Litchfield, the CFO at Merck, says, hope springs eternal. So we're very focused on the near term in the markets. But many people think the long term opportunities for the sector could be tremendous. What What is your thinking now about this, Josh? Yeah, well, you know, my, my the story you're referring to, which ran uh, at the end of March, was making, I think, a long-term case. I think we, we'd said at the time that, you know, the, the, the coming months would be choppy, but that over like a two-year time frame, you know, there, there's, there, there's a lot of opportunity. Um, although I will say, you know, 
at the end of March, when I wrote that, the the the, the sector was down forty seven percent since the peak on February eighth of twenty twenty one. It's now down fifty seven percent. So the logic hasn't changed, and we were making a long term case, but still, you know, the near term situation is certainly not looking good. There was an interesting email uh, note from Jared Holtz, who's a um, uh, strategist at healthcare equity strategist at Oppenheimer who said that things that are, you know, supposed to help biotech, you know, M&A and positive trial results just haven't been doing it in the past month. He noted that Glaxo's deal to buy a company called Sierra Oncology for $2 billion didn't help the rest of the sector, nor did, um, you know, some other positive data, some positive data that had come out. He actually suggested like a broader rebalancing of the ETF to, to get rid of the smaller stocks. Um, you know, I feels a little bit just like, uh, a little this bit window makeup. dressing yeah but 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 he, i think you know he's he, i think what he's saying is that there are because of the the ipo boom there are some very small companies that are out there potentially low quality biotechs that um that's true that but if may, you maybe... if you look at the other biotech etf the ibb you know, it's not doing so great either. It's true. It's true. You know, I, there, there was another note from an analyst at Jeffries named Michael Yee, who was basically saying just to expect expect more chop until bigger catalysts arrive. So someday these things will be irresistibly cheap. <laughs> <laughs> that they may be coming soon. Anyway, let's move on to Biogen. This is a company that cannot stay out of the news. It's had a lot of trouble with its Alzheimer's drug, Aduhelm. Where do things stand now? So they made a big announcement on Tuesday. They're effectively ending the Agilehelm commercial program. The CEO, Michelle Vanastos, is going to leave. He'll stay until they find somebody new. And now we're sort of, everyone's sort of left asking, now what? You know, they're they're emphasizing data that's coming in a couple of months on another Alzheimer's drug called Lecanemab and on um, another, on a depression drug that they are partnered with Sage Therapeutics on called Zoranolone. But these are both relatively high-risk prospects. You know, they're continuing with the phase four trial of Agihelm. That won't read out for a number of years. Um, the various cuts are going to save them a billion dollars. But the, the the underlying problems for Biogen remain. You know, they various one, and all of their key drugs are facing competitive challenges for one reason or another. Um, and I think a lot of analysts were left on Tuesday saying, okay, you're sort of wiping that away, but what are you going to do? What, you know, what's next? I think clearly the new CEO will have a lot of work cut out for them. Do you think the company could become a takeover candidate at some point? Yeah. Um, you know, I'm certainly possible. I think that, um, you know, the, the Lacanamab readout is, is coming in, I believe the fall. Um, and there is, I think analysts have written a lot of, or some, some value for that readout is, is is built into the stock price right now. You know, if it's negative, um, it would be you know what what I think many would refer to as like a distressed large cap biotech, and in that case, it would certainly seem logical that someone might want it. Um, at this point, you know, if you would, were to buy it now, you'd be taking a big gamble, I think, on the outcome of the Lacanemab trial, um, which we wrote about in our feature uh, last week. I guess the question is, if that trial does not um, work out, what are you getting if you buy the company? Yeah, you know, there's an R&D engine. There, there's about similar, you know, there, there, there's stuff in there. but um, And there are reasons why big pharma firms might want some of these um, drugs that are, that are, 
you know, help with sort of near, near term growth, but uh, yeah, that's a little bit beyond me. Um, and, and so I'm, I'm not sure. Okay. Something to look at for the future. So let's go to some listener questions. Destiny asks, is it time to invest in the healthcare sector? I think we've been asking ourselves that all day. And which is better if you think so? Healthcare services, healthcare equipment, and I'll add to that pharma and biotech too. There's so many different aspects to the market. What's the thinking on the street about this? Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm not sure I have a great a great take. I mean, I think right now everyone's just trying to figure out what's what's going to happen in the next few days. I mean, the market's tumbling at this moment. It's hard to think of um, buying into any <laughs> into any sector. Uh, but you know, I, I'm 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 not sure I have a great answer, sort of broken down by sector at this point. Do you look much at the healthcare services and healthcare equipment sectors? Uh, not as much. We have okay. in the past, but you know, it's been uh, we've been so focused on COVID in the past couple of years that um, that stuff has kind of fallen by the wayside. Right, and it seems to have fallen by the wayside in part among patients too, mm. in terms of um, elective surgeries involving healthcare equipment. Sure. But let's move on to the next question. Lori asks about your thoughts. She she mentioned a number of the stocks we talked about, but she also mentioned Johnson and Johnson, and we haven't talked about that today. What's going on at Johnson and Johnson? Um, you know, uh, uh, they, you know, one, one thing that, you know, think about with Johnson and Johnson is that they're preparing for a very dramatic transformation of the company. You know, Johnson and Johnson has three main business units, um, uh, pharma, consumer health, and, um, medical devices, essentially that they now refer to it as med tech and they, in the next couple of years are going to be spinning off, um, the consumer health division, um, which is, I think interesting and and a big change for this company, which is really the last of the the very large um, uh, multi conglomerates. Yeah, they they reported earnings in the middle of April, um, and that that slightly beat Wall Street expectations um, at the time. Okay, so before we go, I just want to ask you a question: What is coming up in terms of big conferences that investors ought to be watching for? It's a lot of big healthcare conferences throughout the year. Anything you've got your eye on? Um, uh, well, th- there's there's a number of uh, there's a big cancer conference in in the early June, uh, the American Society of Clinical Oncology. Ah, the um, ASCO conference. Yeah, yeah. So that'll be June third. I think that's the next one that that really you know deserves some attention. And when you look out over the rest of the year, in addition to COVID and the whole discussion we had about boosters, what do you think the other big themes are that investors ought to be watching? I mean, you know, we, so we had this feature in the magazine last weekend about Alzheimer's. There, there's at least one, if not more, major Alzheimer's drug readouts coming in the next couple of months that will um, have, uh, you know, a major impact on the, on the relevant stocks, including Biogen and Isai and Eli Lilly. Um, and Roche uh, later in the year. Um, so that that's that's one. Um, and I think, you know, the other big thing is just what's going to happen with the biotech sector and is it going to come back and what's it going to mean for, you know, the for 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 all of the various parts of the market that 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 circle around it. I think that's that's a big topic to watch. So, Josh, thanks. We'll pick up there when we meet again in a couple of weeks. Thanks for your comments today and your many insights. And thanks to our listeners for tuning in. Tomorrow on Barron's Live, we will ponder the question, is crypto at a turning point? 
Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies are struggling as the Fed tightens monetary policies. That seems to be the theme of the day. Darren Fonda, the crypto and finance editor at Barron's, and Chris Kuyper, director of research at Fidelity Digital Assets, will discuss what's next for digital assets in a tougher market for tech. So please come back tomorrow, folks. Thank you so much for joining us today. Stay well and have a good day. The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com.